0: Welcome to Life Center Church. We hope you enjoy this message. For more information about this podcast and our church, visit LifeCenterNYC.com. So Father, we thank you for today. Lord, I just pray that you would help me just deliver the word that you've given Lord, we believe that you you want to bring us to mature sons and daughters. You want to bring us to maturity. And so, Lord, as we go through your word, we just ask that it would build us up, that it would strengthen our hearts, that it would encourage us, challenge us. Lord, we bring what we have before you today. We just say, come. Come on the teaching and the reading of your word come, come with power. As the Apostle Paul said, we don't wanna just speak persuasive words of human wisdom and understanding, but we wanna come with the demonstrations of the spirit and of power. And so we just ask to manifest your presence, your anointing on your word in our lives, in practical, tangible ways, for every single person in this room. In Jesus' name. Amen. In Jesus' name. All right. Well, if you were here a couple weeks ago, I think it was maybe three or four weeks, maybe longer, um, I gave a 15 minute version of this message because worship kind of went really, really long. So this will be a much better opportunity to kind of lay it out. I actually really feel it's important. I'm speaking. I told the, the team that we'll just call this Tabernacle of David Part 2, <laughs> since we didn't get through Part 1. Um, but I really feel it's important. I know for, for Pastor Bill and, and for Tammy and the team, even coming into next year, we really feel like the Lord's highlighting, you know, one of the things in this house is to build the house of prayer, which is more than just a prayer set or, um, you know, a two-hour prayer meeting, but it is a culture. It is a, a way, a lifestyle for the Christian to be in prayer, and it's more than just simply a house of prayer with the title, but it's, like I said, it's a culture, it's something for houses of prayer, but it's for, for churches, to be praying churches. It's for the people of God to be praying people, to be intercessors, which is something you don't have a choice. Uh, it's actually part of your identity. I'm not sure if you knew that, uh, but Tammy's been teaching us that for 12 weeks, which has been absolutely amazing on Wednesday nights. All right, let me get organized real quick. While I do this, why don't you take your Bibles out and turn to 2 Samuel chapter 6. All right. Also, I encourage you to maybe, we'll we'll, we'll make a realistic goal. Once a month, maybe bring your paper Bible to church. That that would be something, right? And if you don't have one, We can get you one. Um, Last thing you need is to do your Bible study and all of a sudden your phone's dead (laughs) or your mom's calling or something like that, though you probably would still do, Never mind. we'll leave that there. (laughs) Instagram notification, right? All right, 2 Samuel 6. We're going to read through um, quite a bit of this chapter and then we're going to jump through a a few different verses, but I just want to lay some groundwork before we get here. At this point, we have uh, King David who's on the scene. But before King David was King Saul, uh, it's like a pastor, I don't know if it's a joke or challenge, but I used to, we used to, they used to ask us, what would you rather, King Saul's anointing or King David's anointing? You know, most people say King David, but really they had the same anointing. You know, they were anointed for the same thing. It's just Saul's heart grew cold towards the presence of God. And uh, so then David was anointed, even still while Saul was king. And so here we have an interesting situation. During King Saul's reign towards the end, he had really lost regard for the presence of God to such a point that he did not uh, keep the Ark of the Covenant in a safe place so that it was exposed and it was actually stolen. It was actually taken, and if you read through the passage, it's pretty, you know, uh, explicit in what would happen. They would take it. They would bring it to an enemy territory, and it would say that all the men of that place where they brought it, of that town where they brought it, they had you know, some sort of skin thing, but some theologians think it was like a type of hemorrhoids. And so they would bring the presence. Seriously, this is read 2 Samuel. And so they would bring the ark there, and then the, the guys of the, the town there would break out in hemorrhoids, so they would take it, like like, not just take it out. They probably kicked it out. Like, take it out, go to the next town, same thing happened to the next town, to the point where literally it says they brought it to the town. Like, no, we do not want this here because we know what happened to the neighbors, right? And so it ends up that the ark lands in the temple of Dagon. And so it's in Dagon's temple, and, uh, you know, I'm just giving you the quick version here. And as it's in Dagon's temple, they set it up there. And they come the next morning, because they do their sacrifices and rituals to Dagon, and they find the statue of Dagon had fallen on its face. It never happened before, so they pick it up, do their stuff, come back the next day, it fell on its face again. Like, okay, weird. Again, the next day they come back, only this time is the, the head and the hands broke off of of the idol of the that statue that fell. And it's just this prophetic statement, like, there is no other God that can stand before the presence of God. Even the God built by a man, you know, and it's... it's so we, we see there's something about this Ark, right, that was more than just a structure. And if you know anything about the Ark of the Covenant, uh, it has two cherubims on the top of it. Uh, in between the two cherubims is this box, and inside the box is the tablet of stones, which is the, the Ten Commandments that Moses had received on the mountain, right, on Sinai. Also in there is the almond rod of Aaron, which actually when, would bud... It was a stick that continued to bud in the presence of God, which is incredible. And then also in, inside of there is the, the, a jar that was filled with some of the manna that the Israelites were fed by the Lord every morning. And so another name for the Ark of the Covenant is the Ark of the Testimony because what was inside of this box was telling the story of the Israelites with Moses and with Aaron going through the wilderness. That's why it's called the Ark of the Testimony, the Ark of the Covenant. And then on top of the box is uh, a seat, and it's called the mercy seat, which is incredible because it's this picture, and help me out, Kevin, I think my mic is, I hear like the high pitch coming out of the mic, so if you can help me with that. Um, But this mercy seat is sitting on top of the ark of the testimony, it's this picture that anytime we share a testimony of the Lord, we're releasing mercy in the testimony, and I know we've, we've taught it here a lot, you know, the, the spirit of prophecy is the testimony uh, of Jesus, and that when you share a testimony, you prophesize, do it again, Lord, right? But also when you share testimony, you're releasing mercy, because what was done to you by God that you did not deserve can also be done to someone else. It releases the mercy of the Lord. And so this is, this is not just any structure. This thing is, is, is carrying the presence of the Lord. In fact, when it was set up before David, you, you wouldn't just go before before the ark. It was sit, uh, sitting in the holy of holies, in the holy place. It was uh, if they transported or they brought it wherever they were bringing it, they would have to cover it in a sheet because you couldn't you couldn't look upon it, you know. And even in Israel, right, with Moses and in in his in the tent of Moses, they had the law, right they had to deal with sin. And the way they dealt with sin was one time a year, one high priest would come in before the tabernacle, before the ark, and they would give a sacrifice of of the blood of bulls or goats, right? And it wouldn't forgive sin. All it would do would postpone the penalty of sin for one more year until the next high priest who, you know, cast lots, the next high priest would go in and would do the sacrifice, and year in, year in, year out, the same thing. We're going to talk about how there was a pause in that for 36 years with David, but that would go all the way until one final sacrifice, which was Jesus, which shed his blood, and then we would no longer need to postpone sin, but sin would be forgiven once and for all. And so this, this is a, it's a significant thing in the story of, of the believer and the church and the people of God. And so what's amazing and probably one of the reasons why De, uh, Jesus or the Lord says that David was a man after my own heart is his first thing that he wants to do as king is I'm going to restore the Ark of the Covenant back to the, the capital city, Jerusalem. I'm going to restore the presence of God into our nation. This is going to be the first thing that I do. As I come into my throne as king. And it's amazing. And so we pick this up uh, in verse 6 of chapter 6. And so I want to just read through it once. So just uh, stick with me and then we'll kind of, we'll we'll jump around. All right? And so verse 6. And when they came to Nacon's threshing floor. Oh, one last thing. So... Well, let's read it, and then I'll tell you. How about that? So Uzzah put his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen had stumbled. Mistake. So then the anger of the Lord was aroused against Uzzah, and God struck him there for his error, and he died there by the ark of of God. And David became angry because of the Lord's outbreak against Uzzah, and he called the name of the place Perez Uzzah to this day. And David was afraid of the Lord that day, and he said, how can the ark of the Lord come to me? So David would not move the ark of the Lord with him into the city of David, but David took it aside into the house of Obed-Edom. The ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom for three months, and the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all of his household. Now, this is interesting. It says that it was told to King David from the people around him saying, you know, the Lord has blessed the house of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him because of the ark of God. Now, we read... Past that, But basically they were like, the people were starting to see the reason why David wanted the Ark. They didn't see it when it was in the Philistines, when it was in, in Dagon, because it was completely, there was no regard. They had forgotten about it. But they just get a quick glimpse, literally a quick glimpse. And part of their glimpse is traumatic because someone dies, right? And there's actually a sister passage in 1 Chronicles 15, which we might, if we have time, we'll read a little bit in there today. But we see that in that moment between those verses where Uzzah dies, David's very frustrated and is angry, puts it in Obed-Edom's house. He actually then does what he should have did in the first time when you're trying to do the assignment of the Lord out of your own zeal. He didn't go to the scriptures to see how he should handle the situation and how he should run the assignment that God had given him. So he actually goes back to the scripture. He takes the Torah and he sees, okay, we can't actually carry the the ark on a cart on something that was built by man, that this actually needs to be carried on the shoulder of the priests. Why? Because the presence of the Lord doesn't rest on ministries or on buildings, but it rests on the shoulders of men and women. And so this was, I mean, David was getting revelation, but what I loved, wasn't just David, the people got revelation in a different way, but they see the blessing of God in just three months. That means there had to be something dramatically different happen at Obed-Edom's house and in his community. All of a sudden, this guy who was just doing his normal work kept doing the same thing he did in the same way that he did it, but because the presence of the Lord was in his house, everything he did was blessed. And so now you got probably the little cheeky guys that are uh, around David that always have an opinion are saying, hey, we see that they're getting blessed at Obed-Edom's house. Basically saying like, we want to be blessed. Let's get this to Jerusalem. Let's, okay, yeah, now this is a good idea. Let's get this to Jerusalem. But it's, it's powerful that you can, we're literally seeing this honor, but also this revelation of, oh my gosh, the presence of the Lord, right? So David went and brought up the ark from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with gladness. And so it was when those bearing the ark of the Lord had gone six paces that he sacrificed oxen and fatted sheep. Now, again, we could read right by that, but they're going for miles. And every six paces, now maybe it's six, six feet, six steps, maybe it's six meters, I don't know. But this is a dramatic scene. Every six paces, whatever that is, they're stopping the whole procession with thousands of people, And they're giving a blood sacrifice, which, I mean, it's, there's a whole prophetic picture there. Like the presence of the Lord is being ushered into Jerusalem with gladness, with praise, with dancing, and with the covering of the blood. Okay? Let's keep going. And it says, then David danced before the Lord with all his might. And David was wearing a linen ephod. So David and all the house of Israel brought the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the trumpet. Let's stop there for now. Now, a few things to take note of. This isn't just anyone leading the procession. It is as if, for us, President Biden was leading the procession to restore the Ark of the Covenant to Washington, D.C. And he had his whole cabinet and his whole Congress and his whole Senate behind him. And they were sacrificing and making pray. Like, it, this is a dramatic scene for Israel coming into their capital Jerusalem and everyone we see everyone is watching not just watching they're there they're there this this was huge okay and so one one of the things that I want to and, and again we're going to we're going to jump back and forth but one of the things that I want to really highlight or another thing I want to highlight is he as king as president as whoever you want to put in there, he was wearing a linen ephod, which means that he he stripped himself of his kingly clothes. He humbled himself before the presence of the Lord. The linen ephod is something that a servant would wear. He would actually be mocked by it by his wife a, a couple verses later, which we'll read about. But he, he positioned himself in, in a, a humble way, setting a model for the people around him. And it says that he danced wildly before the presence of the Lord. And, we're, you know, one day I'm, I want to teach, I have a, a message on worship that I want to teach because, you know, the, something about worship where it's dancing and, and it's shouting, like we love the clap, but there's only one time in the scripture where it says to clap your hands, which is, it's two times, but the second time you have to be a tree in the field. The other time <laughs> it says, oh, clap your hands, all you people, and then it follows shout unto God. Every time the scripture talks about worship and praise, it talks about with praise your mouth, with your instrument, with your dance. And I love the, you know, the Pentecostal back and forth clap, and that's fine. But there's something that we even see in David's life in worship where he would go on to say to his wife, and we're going to get there, I will be even more undignified than what you just saw today, okay? And we'll, we'll, we'll get there. So the presence is resting upon people. The presence is not to just be on buildings or, or, or ministries for our, our practical sake, but it's to rest on, on people, and not just people, on Levites, on the ones who minister to the Lord, right? And we come before his presence with humility. With humility. Okay. So, he fast-forward, establishes it. He, he pitched a tent in Jerusalem, He puts the ark right in the middle of that tent. We're going to get back to 2 Samuel sometime later. But he ends up putting it in this tent that he pitched. He puts it in. And what he does uh, when he establishes it, he doesn't reestablish the law of Moses and the way that they did it in Moses' tabernacle. But he does something very different. He basically sets it up that instead of a high priest coming before the presence once a year to bring a sacrifice of praise. He says anyone can come. And not just one one time a year, you can come any time of year and as much as you want. And you don't have to bring a sacrifice that's specific, which was the blood of bulls and goats. But he actually made it that you could bring any sacrifice that you had. So if it was a prayer, if it was a shout, if it was a whatever he established it that you could bring anything that you had, whether you had wealth and you could bring gold or whatever, or you were simple and you could bring a prayer, that would be pleasing enough to come before the presence of the Lord. And this is important. And why is it important for us today in 2021? Because David was establishing something that would be a prototype for new covenant Christianity that we would see when Jesus came. And he was foreshadowing what would happen when someone would come once and for all who knew no sin, shed his body, shed his blood, break his body, and we could come now with unveiled faces before the presence of God, approaching the throne of grace boldly. And so for 30 to 36 years, I, I always forget the number, he established something that would be a picture of what we get to do today, what the early church got to do in Acts, in the book of Acts, and all throughout, and what for the past 2,000 years we were doing. And so one of the things when you study scripture is origin. It's when something is established in its first place. And so we're seeing the very first establishment of what would become known as the Tabernacle of David, what would be a prototype for normal Christianity. And then we'll see, which we're about to read, that the Lord wants to rebuild and rebirth in the last days. And we live in those days. So I want to I talk about a scripture, if you want to turn with me, to Psalms 51, verse 15. Now, this was written, Psalms 51, this was written in response. David was writing this in response to a prophet named, two prophets actually, but specifically Nathan. And this was the response of the Lord after Nathan the prophet went to David. And in verse 15, we pick it up. We see him saying, O Lord, open my lips and my mouth shall show forth your praise. For you do not desire sacrifice or else I would give it. You do not delight in burnt offering. The sacrifice of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. These, O oh God, you will not despise. Now, if you would search it, again, this story we see in Chronicles and in, in Samuel. In 2 Chronicles 29 and 25, we find this revelation that David got, which no one else had, right? Again, remember, he was breaking the law here. They would have all understood the law of Moses. He was breaking the law that basically saying you can bring a sacrifice of a broken heart and contrite spirit. Now, he's not just looking for the blood of bulls and goats. And so David was prophesying something, and everyone else was kind of playing catch up. And what ends up happening in 2 Chronicles 29, verse 25, we actually see Nathan and Gad hearing the same thing as David sometime later, confirming the word of the Lord to King David, who was also really a prophet. In his, own, in his own way, but the, prophet of that, uh, the prophets of those days who they held in high esteem said, yeah, David was right. The Lord is not just looking for the, the sacrifice of blood of bulls and goats, but he's looking for the sacrifice of the heart. And one of the things that I love and I've seen in, in meetings for years One of the guarantees, if you want to guarantee that the Lord will meet you, you come to him with your broken heart and your contrite spirit. It says, to you, he will not despise. He'll meet you every time. So when you come in here on a Sunday or a Friday or Wednesday, whatever, and you're not flying high, but you're coming broken, you're coming contrite, he will still meet you. It's a promise. It's a guarantee. And in fact, not only is it a promise that's just in some Psalm, but it's a promise that's connected to the lifestyle of Christianity that David introduced all those years ago. So they confirm it so that all priests, right, could come before. Let's get to Amos 9.11 now. You guys with me? Yeah. All right, we're laying a foundation here. Amos 9, verse 11 says, on that day, I will raise up the tabernacle of David, which has fallen down. Some translations would call it the booth of David. And I'll repair its damages. I will raise up its ruins and I will rebuild it as in the days of old. Verse 12, that they may possess the remnant of Eden and all the Gentiles who are called by my name says the Lord who does this thing. I will rebuild in the last days the fallen booth or the tabernacle of David. All right. Fast forward. Let's turn to First Peter 2, verse 9. Now we got... It's the New Testament, right? After Jesus... This is us, but you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Okay. In the last days, I rebuilt the fallen booth of David. David established a priestly order. We're going to get to that. 1 Peter 2, 9, he calls us, New Testament believers, a royal priesthood. So we have this connection here. And now I want to highlight something in Acts. And you can turn there while, while I set the scene, Acts 15. In Acts 15, we find the New Testament church. And here in the New Testament church, we have a meeting of the apostles. We got Peter, we got James, we got all, all, all the, the big hitters here, right? They're all meeting And they got an issue going on. It's the Jerusalem council. They got a big problem. What's their problem? The people who aren't supposed to be getting saved, they're getting saved. (laughs) The Gentiles, they're getting saved. Not only are they getting saved, they're getting filled with the Holy Spirit. I thought that was just going to happen to the Jews. And so they have this meeting. What do we do with the Gentiles? And I love it. I love this meeting because so many amazing leadership examples happen here, models happen here. They come together. It's relational, number one. They're coming as brothers. Some parts of the Bible, one person might be leading the meeting. and this this part, it seems like James is, is the one leading the meeting. Uh, but they come together and they're not just kind of you know, giving their opinion, but they're coming with testimonies, what the Lord has done. They're coming with dreams, with revelation of what the Lord is speaking, and with their experiences with people—not just their experience, but, but with people who are of this people, the Gentiles, who are on the outskirts over here, right? And so it's it's beautiful. And so what happens is, you know, Peter Peter begins to share okay, well, I had this dream, vision. In the dream, the sheet comes down. This vision happened to Peter three times. The sheet comes down, if you guys remember it. And um, there's all these unclean animals. And then the, the Lord speaks to Peter in the vision in the dream. And he says, rise up, kill and eat. And Peter's like, no, I'm not gonna kill and eat, it's unclean. And then the Lord says, don't call unclean what I've called clean. Three times it happens, right? And then there's other testimonies that get shared. But we, what we pick up in Acts 15, and we're in verse 11 here. Oh, I don't have my Post-it note. It's okay. I'll turn there. All right, Acts 15, verse 16. Okay, so Peter shares his vision. Barnas, Barnabas and Paul, they're declaring uh, how miracles, signs, and wonders were happening among the Gentiles. Uh, and so then we get James here. So we got testimony, we got experience, we got dreams, we got heavenly re- revelation. Why are we talking about this during the Tabernacle of David message? Well, it's because James says, Okay, I know what's going on. Guys, I listened to all, I know what's happening. I know what's happening. This is actually in the scripture. This is in the Bible. And he opens the scroll and he says, Men and brethren, listen to me. Verse 14 Simon Peter declared how God at the first visited the Gentiles to take out of them a people for his name. And with this is the words of the prophets that agree. Basically saying, We're in agreement with the prophetic word that was from years ago. Just as it is. As it is written, after this, I will return. I will rebuild the tabernacle of David, which has fallen down. I will rebuild its ruins and I will set it up so that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord. Even all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord who does all these things. He quotes the Amos 9, 11, and 12 prophecy in the meeting of what do we do with Gentiles being saved? And what's interesting, Tabernacle of David, this worship and prayer structure and movement prototype that David set up, James gets a hold of that passage as they're discussing what do we do with the Gentiles coming to church? And he makes this connection between Gentiles, a people group, an entire people group coming to the Lord, and a worship and prayer community. And because Amos 9, pet Uh, passage says, I will rebuild this this thing in the last days, he's he's saying that there is this connection, and remember the Amos 9 passage, verse 12, so that they they might possess the remnant of Edom. What's Edom? It's the land of Esau, Jacob and Esau, Jew and Gentile. And he's making this connection that when When we open up this this presence, this outpouring, this thing where the Holy Spirit is falling, I mean, they were in full-blown revival, guys. They were in full-blown outpouring, thousands coming into the Lord, signs, wonders. And he's saying, oh, this is because we're worshiping and we're praying. That an entire people group, the Gentiles, were fulfilling this prophecy that Edom would be possessed by God. And he connects that when you enter into a lifestyle as a church, as a community of worship and prayer, it actually creates something in the heavenly places that softens the heart of entire people groups that they could come and know the Lord. And I think this is key for our house, a house who has been called to evangelism, to go and to worship and prayer, that this, they're connected, they're not separate. That when we go out after a Sunday or or during the week, it's not separate from worship and prayer, but it comes out of the place of a lifestyle of worship and prayer before the presence of God. You want to go a little deeper in this? Okay. Turn to Isaiah 60, verse 18. Isaiah 60, verse 18 second half of the verse says, you shall call your walls salvation and your gates praise. You shall call your walls salvation and your gates praise. Now let's go a little further. 62 verse 10. Wall salvation, gates praise. Isaiah 62, verse 10, go through, go through the gates, prepare the way for the people, build up, build up the highway, take out the stones, lift up a banner for the people. Go through the gates. What's the gates? Praise. In the city of God, in in the heavenly Jerusalem, in Revelation 21, verse 21, it says that the gates around the city are made up of one big pearl. I don't know how. It's carved out of some massive pearl that can only be produced in the oceans of heaven. I don't know. But it's 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 made, the gate is made out of one big pearl. And how do you produce, how are, are, are pearls produced? Friction, right? There's irritation to produce a pearl. And th- th- this is just my opinion. A little bit of connecting it here. There's a little bit of rich. This is not just, but the gates of heaven are made up of pearls, irritation, and Isaiah tells us that gates are praise. So it's the sacrifice of praise that creates the gate so that Isaiah says, go through, go through the gate. And we know this verse, lift up your head, O you gates, be lifted up, you everlasting doors, that the king of glory may come in. When you looked at a gate, the last time you looked at a gate, when did it have a head on it? Never, because... He's talking about you. We're the gate. We're the door. We're the place where heaven meets earth. And so when we come with praise, it's the gate of our heart being opened up so that the king of glory can come in. He comes in. I mean, we see it in David's story. He doesn't come in through ministries. He comes in through people. His presence ushers into a city because it rides on you. And one of the ways to access the open heavens is to come with praise and opens up the gate of your heart so the Lord can come and fill you so that you can go and fill the earth, salt and light. And this is is significant for us. Not only are we doing it to expose people, but we see in the Isaiah 62:10, go through, go through the gates, prepare the way for the people, build up, build up the highway, take out the stones, remove the dusty rubble, lift out a banner. What you're doing when you live out this lifestyle in this way that we're inviting us to this morning is you build a highway of praise. Who is the highway for? It's not just for you, it's for the people that are gonna come behind you. And so when you're removing the stones, you're removing With your praise, you're removing obstacles that were in the way of other people to get to him. Why are you lifting up a banner? What's the point of lifting up a banner? It's so that people can see the way. We live our life in such a way that we become carriers of the presence of God. That even in the hard seasons where we bring ourselves as a sacrifice of the Lord when we don't feel like worshiping we don't feel like singing we don't feel like dancing it's in that moment where you worship anyway where you do the David thing you say why so downcast O oh my soul yet I will praise him it's in those moments where gates bust open highways are built stones are removed rubble is removed banners are lifted and you're preparing a way for God to come in We're building an altar for God. We get to come anyway. But the, what does the enemy love to do? He loves to tell us, no, you, you sinned yesterday. You probably shouldn't go to church today. No, you're, you're wrestling with unbelief. You probably shouldn't pray for anyone today. Shame comes to tell us to do the exact opposite of the thing we need to do in the moment of our weakness. It's in the moment of our failure and our weakness, that's the moment we should be rushing in. It's why it's called the throne of grace. We come boldly, not with veiled faces, not hiding our sin, not hiding our stuff, not hiding. We come with unveiled faces exactly the way you are. This is the beauty of this gospel. It's on our best day, we can come. And our worst day, we can come. And even on your worst day, when you feel like you're your worst and you're the worst example of a Christian and you lift your voice in worship and praise to the king who's worthy, you still prepare a way for someone else. What? In my weakness, I'm bringing breakthrough for someone else? I'm still partnering in the gospel? In my weakness? How beautiful is that? How encouraging is that? It means this, you're never disqualified. Disqualified. That you're never disqualified. Now, should, should sin abound so that grace can abound all the more? Certainly not. That's not the point we're making here. The point we're making, it's our desire to live right. And though we're not perfect and we stumble sometimes, his grace still abounds Amen. and we can come. We go through the gates. Okay, connection. A worshiping church, a praying church, People getting saved. It's shifting things in, in the, the heavenly realm. And then I want to get back to 2 Samuel. About, I have about 10 minutes and then I'm going to be done. So turn back with me to 2 Samuel. You guys good? Yeah. I know. Sometimes when you're quiet, it makes me nervous, but you're probably just thinking. It's okay. Okay, verse 16. Let's finish this out, this story out. So, the ark of the Lord came into the city of David. Michael, which is Saul's daughter, I kind of really like in a very not so nice way, whatever. But it's funny how they remind you that in this moment she's Saul's daughter. That's just kind of humorous to me. Um, They could have just said David's wife, but they said Michael, Saul's daughter, uh, who's David's wife, saw King David leaping and whirling before the Lord, and she despised him in her heart. So they brought the ark of the Lord and set it in its place in the midst of the tabernacle that David had erected for it. Then David offered burnt offerings and peace offerings for the Lord. And when David had finished offering burnt offerings and peace offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord of hosts. Then he distributed among all the people among the whole multitude of Israel, both the men and the women, to everyone a loaf of bread, a piece of meat, and a cake of raisins. So all the people departed, everyone to his house. Then David returned to bless his household. And Michael, again, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet David and said, how glorious, she's being very sarcastic here. How glorious was the king of Israel today, uncovering himself today in the eyes of the maids of his servants as one of the base fellows shamelessly uncovers himself. She's basically saying, like, how, how dare you dress like our servants? How dare you? My father would have never done that. He wouldn't. So David said to Michael, a little comeback, his little cheeky David here. He says, It was before the Lord who chose me instead of your father. Ow. Yeah. And all of his house, which includes her. Okay. (laughs) We're seeing a little marital argument here, okay? Amen. So, to appoint me the ruler over the people of Israel, over the people of the Lord, over Israel. Therefore, I will play music before the Lord. I will play music before the Lord. And this was in his heart. And I will be even more undignified than this and will be humble in my own sight. But as for the maidservants of whom you've spoken, by them I will be held in honor. She's like, yeah, I get it. You don't get this. But you understand, as a king, the people around me, they always honor me. But what I just did, even the people that hate the kings will hold me in high esteem. Because I met them right where they are on their level. And I as them came before the he modeled something. Do you know, do you know what he did? The maidservants, the men maid servants who would never imagine that they could go into the holy of holies. He says, I just opened the door for them. Everyone in my kingdom can come before the presence. It's for everyone. It's for everyone. Therefore, Michael, the daughter of Saul, had no children to the day of her death. Now listen. Two things are possible. It's very possible that after this argument, that statement, she had no more children, maybe they no longer had intimacy between them, and that's why. She never had kids. But it's also possible the Lord closed her womb. And I want to read... Isaiah 54, verse 1 says, Sing, O barren, you who have not born, break forth into singing and cry aloud, you who have not labored with child, for more are the children of the desolate than the children of the married woman, says the Lord. Isn't it amazing? We see the disregard for worship closed the womb, but the womb who's closed, and comes before the lord will sit with singing her womb will be more abundant than the womb that was already open when worship is despised in your heart it closes the things that give birth but when worship is held in high esteem even the things that are dead inside of you will come to life and not only will they come alive they will come more alive even compared to things that were already living this is the value That Jesus places on worship. And he's the Lord. He decides how he wants to be approached. And these are one of the ways that he does it. Okay. We believe that in the last day that the Lord is going to raise up the tabernacle of David. The house of prayer. There's a phrase that we'll use and we're going to teach on this more next year uh, called harp and bowl. Which I had someone come up to me after we mentioned it, and they're like, Are we all gonna learn to play harps? No, the harp just <laughs> it's 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 worship. It's the picture of an instrument, it's worship. And the bowl we see uh, in, in scripture is it's the intercession, it's the prayers of the saints. It says that it sits on the golden lampstands. The the bowls sit in the golden lampstands and they get they're filled with the prayers of the saints, and we see that they get tipped over at times. And we can talk about that another day. But in Isaiah 56, verse 7, the Lord declares this. He says, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations. This is a promise of which the church is being empowered by God's grace in a powerful way, that we are a house of prayer for all nations, for every people group, right? And again, we see in David's tabernacle, after he did this, do you know what he did? He did something crazy. He hired 4,000, 4,000 musicians 4,000 musicians. Not only did he hire these musicians, but he freed it up that they didn't have to do other work, meaning they received money, housing for them, their their spouses, their children, right? Because actually their children would be raised up in the house as well to do the very thing. It was family. It was generational. 4,000 musicians, singers, 288 of them, 288 singers, full-time to minister before the presence of the Lord day and night. And it's actually a picture, right? Not only was this thing David established for New Testament Christianity, but he was was doing something on earth that was in heaven. Revelation 4 and 5, we see nonstop, the 24 elders, the four living creatures, each having their own harp and bowl, which is where we get that phrase harp and bowl, means there's 28 harps, 28 bowls coming before the the presence, the throne of God, saying holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty over and over and over again. Worthy, worthy, worthy over and over and over again. And what David established, he, he made it that these singers and musicians would play in 24 sets, one hour slots for 36 years. Non-stop worship and prayer before the ark in the holy of holies, in, in the tabernacle. David really had it in his heart to build a house for God. But the Lord didn't, wouldn't allow him to do it for many different reasons and said, no, your son's going to do that. And that's where we see Solomon build it. And throughout history, throughout scripture, we actually see, I don't know if it's like six or seven or eight uh, Resurrections or renewals or revivals of David's tabernacle, all the while, all the way up to I think to I don't know if it was Nehemiah or Hezekiah who did the last one, but we see it happen all throughout the Old Covenant, the Old Testament. This thing of nonstop worship before the presence of God, day and night, day and night, and not only would you know uh, would they play uh, sing songs, but they would prophesy on their instruments. I think I have it. We can we can read it. I'll read it to you really quick. Second Chronicles 29, I think it is. And he's, verse 25, and he stationed the Levites in the house of the Lord with cymbals, with stringed instruments and with harps according to the commandment of David, of Gad. Uh, this may not be the one. Well, I'll find it later. But eventually, essentially, in one of these scriptures, which I don't have it written down, it says that they would have the instruments prophesy. This is Old Testament. And what does that mean? What is it? How can the piano prophesy? How can the, 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 the guitar prophesy? How does the harp prophesy? How does the drum prophesy? We're going to talk about that next year. We're going to talk about that. What does it look like for a prophetic spirit to come on the musicians and not just the singers who sing a prophecy? I actually think it's very similar to the Acts 2 outpouring where the thing that drew the crowds wasn't the tongues, it was a sound in heaven. I think there's something about a sound that gets released, a prophetic sound that gets released that actually draws people to the Lord. All right. Let's end here. So... What does it mean then for you and for me? Yes, practically, we, we, we do prayer sets, we do worship service. We have Sunday morning, we, we have uh, choruses, we, we do different things. yeah, team coming on up. But like I said, it's, it's not about the building. It's not so much about the service. The Lord is looking at our hearts. And I believe he wants to raise up a company of people, a remnant of people, which I think it's going to be a large number of people in New York City who are going to become like David, who are going to establish this in the tabernacle of their heart, in the temple of their heart. You know, our bodies are are temples of the Holy Spirit. They're houses. We house God. God lives in us. That's really good news. And I believe there's an invitation for us to enter into a lifestyle of what David modeled. Honor and regard for the presence of God. No other thing before him. We come humbly before him. We come whatever way we are. If we're coming and we're flying high and we have breakthrough and we're like those moments where the the disciples came to Jesus and said, even demons bow and when we pray in your name, or we come, as David said, we're, we're broken, we're contrite. And we know, but the Lord, you will not despise me, even when I come this way. In fact, you take pleasure in my weak worship. You take pleasure in my songs. But I also think it's an invitation of practicality. Some of us are going to need to enter into the Davids even more undignified than this. It's going to mean singing loud enough that you can hear yourself sing. I'm serious. I'm serious. And that might be a sacrifice for some of you. But I've watched it. I've watched it in the lives of people who have come and they've entered into something that they're not comfortable with. And I've watched breakthrough come as they do something. It's like, really, Rich, do we have to sing loud? Do I really have to dance? Well, it's not my idea, number one. It's here. But two, sometimes there does need to be an outward expression of the inward shout of your heart. And that might make you sweat sometimes. I remember the first time I danced for the Lord, it was like in my bedroom because I would never do it in church. And as I danced in my bedroom, it was like I was still sweating as if CNN and Fox News and NBC were all watching me being broadcast. Like it just felt awkward and it felt weird and I didn't like it and but there was something in me as a 14 year old, as a 15 year old that just knew I, I'm in worship and I feel like I just want to explode. I wish I could fly. There just needs to be more than just sitting and saying the words. You are an instrument of worship. Your body is an instrument of worship before the Lord. You make sounds. You make movements. You release things in the spirit. It wasn't just David's songs. It was his dance. It was his movement. It was his sacrifice that would make him go in the history books of a man after God's own heart and his assignment to be rebirthed in the last days. And the Lord of all lords sitting on a throne that's called David's throne. What? I will rebuild this in the last day guys, we're in those days. We live in these days, and he's rebuilding it all across the earth. I was talking to Cult this morning, and it's just like, you know, I, I grew up in this, right? So sometimes I just assume that, oh, everyone knows this. But realizing, oh no, a lot of the church doesn't know this. And maybe some of you today, this is the first time you're hearing about this type, or Tabernacle of David, or the House of Prayer movement, and what is a prayer movement, or what is a worship movement, and yeah, we got all the phrases and it's great. But this, this is a lifestyle, guys. You get to do this at home. You get to do this with your kids. You get to do this with your family. You get to do this with your siblings. And yes, it's going to be awkward at first. Yes, it's going to feel weird at first. And that's okay. We press past the awkwardness. You know, I like to call it, we, we, we got to step over the chicken line because he's, he's on the other side of it. He's on the other side of it, guys. I'm telling you, if... if if you would take this risk, and you come on, on Sundays, Wednesdays, or in your secret place time, and you come, and you're like, I'm going to sing loud. I know Colt was joking, you know, he can't sing. He, he can actually sing. We, we just don't sing on tune. He can sing. He just can't maybe sing on tune some of the time. And I want to say that over some of you guys. You might think you can't sing. No, you physically can sing like I said about my mother. I was like, Mom, the Lord loves the sound of your voice. Basically saying the rest of us don't. But, um, but this is, this is our reality. We, we do things in our weakness. You're, you're not a singer. Great. So in your weakness, we're going to be made strong and we're going to sing. We're going to come with shouts. We're going to come with a dance. We're going to come with a sacrifice. We're going to create something in this room that's going to build a highway for New York City. But we can only do that from from praise. We can only do that in worship. We can only do it in the way that the Lord has laid it out for us to do. The wisdom of God is foolishness in the eyes of man. You take a kingdom, you you take a a nation, and you're like, what's your your war room strategy to conquer a nation? We're going to sing. David would go on to do it. They would sing before the enemy, and the enemy would be struck down. Come on, stand with me. (laughs) Guys, just like your intercessors, you are worshipers. It's not a choice. It's your identity. It's what you were made to be. And I'm here to tell you, to remind you of something that the Lord set way before the foundations of the earth. He made you as an instrument of worship. He made you as an instrument of praise. He put in your vocal cords an ability to shift things. Like we saw in Acts 15 where an entire people group as the worship and prayer was going forth in the New Testament church by Acts 15, an entire people group, the Gentiles, came to know the Lord. They were filled with the Holy Spirit. This is weird. It's a mystery. Why does sin? I don't know. But it's going on in heaven. The angels are doing it. The elders are doing it. And Jesus taught us this prayer. He says, pray our Father who is in heaven. Holy is your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. He told us, you want to see what to model on the earth? Look at the model in heaven. David saw it. It's worship. nonstop. It's prayer. Non-stop. The apostle Paul understood it a little bit. He said, I pray without ceasing. Uh, these are mysterious things. I don't know, but we're going to enter into it. So I want to pray for us. Father, Lord, we come before you. We want to be instruments of praise. We want to tune our instruments of our voice, of our dance. Lord, we look to the story of what you did with David. Where the fruit of his heart says in the face of that spirit that would despise worship. Says, oh you've seen nothing. I will be even more undignified than this. That was the 90's. I will dance. I will sing. To be glad for my king. Nothing Lord is hindering this passion in my soul. I'll become even more undignified. Lord there is a passion. There is a passion you want to restore to your church, to your people. Where the natural response is an abundance of praise. Where the normal response is a shout and a dance and a song because we can't help but overflow. Father I ask for those whose hearts are burning and it's many in this room right now. Father would you release a grace. To step into this in a practical way in their life, in their week, in their days, in their car rides and train rides. At their desk, at their home, in their bedrooms, God. In our services, God. We will be even more undignified than this. Shake us from our boredom. Shake us from our apathy. Shake us, God. Shake us from our dust. Father would you release in this room passion for your name. A heart of worship God. Lord I pray even that you would raise up full time singers and musicians in this house who would minister before you day and night. Musicians who are excellent. Singers who are excellent in their giftings, God. But Lord, for all of us, that You would raise up Levites and priests who would sing with our out-of-tune instruments, with our out-of-tune guitars, with our out-of-tune voices, we would come in worship. Come on, let's sing today. We hope you enjoyed the message. You can also follow us on Instagram at LifeCenterNYC or YouTube at LifeCenterChurchNYC.